statements. His wife, who fled to the US with their two children in 2009, said her husband lost over 22 kilograms while in prison. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The Bank of England steps back a little on the timing of an interest rate rise. Earnings are coming thick and fast. Ten cent beats handily. Cisco does too, but the stock slips in after hours trade. And we look forward to a handful of key reports today. China Mobile, Lenovo, Swire Pacific and CLP. Also, the very weak credit numbers in China have economists and investors expecting a little more stimulus. And soft retail sales in the United States also encouraged investors. Bad news, it seems, is good news at the moment. The data have been really bad. And in fact, today we got negative nominal wage growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've had to change their view. Um, there's much more slack in the labor market than they thought. And that puts aside, if you like, for 2014, certainly the possibility of any rate rise. That's Dartmouth professor Danny Blanchflower, and he's talking about the Bank of England. Financial conditions are likely to tighten as the global recovery progresses. And sustained expansion here at home will ultimately require growth in productivity and real incomes, both of which have disappointed. Have disappointed. That's the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. So we'll look at that in just a moment. Our guests today include Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting on markets and the China data and your portfolio. We'll also be getting the views of Robert Howe of Akamai Capital. And also joining the program will be Frederick Alkvist of China Rye for a look at 10 cents earnings and also what to expect from Alibaba. Well, the Bank of England has cut its forecast for wage growth and that led to market expectations that rates will go up later rather than sooner. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney reiterated his assertion that rates would only rise gradually and to a limited extent when they do move. The path of bank rate will depend on how the expansion proceeds and how the inflation outlook evolves. This expansion faces some challenges. Geopolitical risks have intensified and structural adjustment continues in the euro area where growth is expected to remain modest. Expectations are now that wages will only rise one and a quarter percent this year. A report out last night showed that wages actually declined for the first time since 2009, even as unemployment fell. So let's go back to Professor Blanchflower. He says globalization is one thing keeping wages low. I think a big issue is that there's a huge number of people flowing into the UK from Eastern Europe. They can work, the Poles can come and work, and essentially what happens is as wages improve, then a new flow of worker comes in. So this is globalization, if you like, but there's lots of slack in the labor market. The unemployed, the underemployed, and a potential flow of people coming into the country are pushing down on wages at a time when there's lots of slack. And this is happening in many countries around the world. And like in Hong Kong, he says that higher rates will hurt mortgage holders. There's another thing which really Americans maybe don't understand, uh, that the, basically people in the UK on mortgages have variable rates. So the second that the Bank of England raises their rates, 
the payments on mortgages will rise. So currently, people are paying around 2% on a mortgage. They're 50 basis points plus one and a half above base. So at the moment that the Bank of England raises rates, people's mortgages are going to rise and their wages remain low. That's going to have a big effect on, um, on, on defaults, if you like. It's going to affect spending. Yeah. So they're very reticent to raise rates and especially to raise rates before the Fed raises them. So before the Fed actually moves, well, let's take a look at what's happening in America. On Wall Street, stocks rose on weaker retail sales. That's because investors think the data may keep the Fed on hold longer. The S&P 500 was up 0.7%, a pretty good gain at 1946. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 91 points to 16,651. But we are in that peculiar mindset where bad news can be seen as good news. Retail sales were little changed in the month of July. It was the worst performance in six months. Car sales slowed and wages went nowhere. The data followed a 0.2% advance in June. One of the problems is apparel. Gilbert Harrison at Finenco says young people have five priorities and apparel is well down the list. The first is their cell phones. That's the first bill they pay. Uh, they need to exist and that's where the world is. Second is athletic shoes and uh, that's one of the reasons why Foot Locker and some of the other uh, shoe retailers have done so phenomenally well. It's fashion $150-$200 shoes that not only the guys but the girls are buying. Third is games. Uh, they play a lot of time, spend a lot of money on games. Fourth is accessories. And last comes uh, apparel. Last comes apparel. So that is one of the things that has been hurting sales overall. And the retail companies have performed well in the stock market, while lots of tech companies uh, have done well. And we'll get to $0.10 earnings uh, and a discussion uh, with Frederick Ockfist in a minute. But I can tell you, $0.10 posted a 59% rise in second quarter profit. The profit was up to 5.84 billion RMB in the latest quarter. That was up from 3.68 billion. And it was uh, quite sharply better than what analysts had expected. They were looking for $5.37 billion. So again, Tencent with a 59% rise there. Cisco also came out after the bell on Wall Street. It beat on earnings and revenue. The company also said it would cut 6,000 jobs or 8% of its workforce. The stock fell slightly in after-hours trade because Cisco said that earnings for the current quarter would be slightly lower than what analysts had expected. And Cathay Pacific said that profit rose in the first half from a low base a year ago. Profit was $347 million from $24 million a year ago, but there was still plenty of analysts who were a little bit disappointed in Cathay's performance. Our first guest is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So there's really a lot of earnings. I highlighted also that uh, quite a number coming out today that uh, we'll be looking at a bit later, including uh, Swire Pacific and CLP here and Lenovo and China Mobile. Things are setting up okay in markets, um, and you've been a little bit bearish of late. So where does that leave you? Well, I think markets focusing on two things. Geopolitical concerns is one of them. They faded a little bit in the in the last few days, so so markets um, a little bit more in in risk on mode. But I think the most important thing that everyone is is thinking about is when are we going to see the rise in interest rates, particularly in the U.S. Um, what is the timing for that? And over the last couple of days, we've had a lot of evidence in the form of economic data from all over the world, in fact, which was almost without exception unremittingly bad. 
said. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, GDP contracting in Japan, although everyone was expecting that. We saw some very worrying household consumption figures, which fell 5.2% quarter on quarter, the worst on record. We have the credit numbers from China, which were a huge surprise. Um, in Europe, we have a number of countries now in, um, in recession and also in deflation. Um, and even the motor of the Eurozone, Germany, is, is slowing down. So everything that's coming out in terms of economic data seems to push that, uh, that point at which we're going to see interest rates further out. Into okay, the let's pick apart a few of those things. Um, in Japan, although it was negative, there were some reasons for it, given the consumption tax and uh, the front loading in the first quarter. So that can kind of be set aside a little bit. And don't you think it's what we want in China, that there's a bit less credit because they've got a debt problem? So a little less credit may be seen as a good thing. In terms of the West, yeah, Europe is a problem. Growth is slow, maybe even heading into recession. But the reason that markets have perked up is that, um, you know, they like this current environment. Rates are low. Uh, as long as you don't get really higher inflation and really strong growth, then the markets can ease higher. Well, rates are very low. In, in fact, in uh, in Europe, they're at, they're at record lows. I mean, the, the German 10-year, when, when we spoke about this t- two weeks ago, it was at uh, 1.12%. Um, it's now down to 1.03%, you know, the, almost the lowest in, uh, in history. So bond yields are at you know, record lows uh, ac- across the Eurozone. And that's also driving US yields um, lower, because if you compare a German yield of 1.03 with, say, the US 10-year at 24 um, you know, some the U.S. yields start to look attractive, and they get dragged lower in the in the in the tailwind of what's going on in um, in Europe. So it's sort of, in terms of bonds, it's become a bit of a, a virtuous circle. Why would people be buying so many government bonds when the yields are that low? Well, the, the, because they're like you, they fear you know they fear a big crash coming. Well, it, it's bizarre because really you have to think. I mean, if you take the German economy, the German economy is not in recession; it, it's slowing down, um, and there have been over the last two years, many recessions in Germany, but we've never, ever seen yields at this, at this level in history in some countries. So it sort of begs the question, what on earth is it that is driving yields to this sort of, um, sort of low level? Is it some sort of dire fear about the economy? Maybe not. Um, Maybe it's just that there's a lot of money around because a lot's been printed. Well, what it is, is it's the zero interest rate policies of the central banks around the world, um, particularly so, so, the Fed. But the point is that that doesn't necessarily follow then about the fears that you suggest. I mean, maybe people are buying bonds uh, because, um, you know, you you do need if you have a lot of money, if you've got tens of billions of dollars, OK, you can't put it all in risky um, assets. So a lot of it goes into government bonds and you get a return even, you know, even two percent is pretty decent on, you know, 20 billion dollars. Right. Well, if you can borrow if Bill Gates, zero, so why yeah. not buy a few bonds? If you can borrow at zero. Um, you know, and taking you know. So you worry about the carry Japan, trade. You, you know, worry that there's a lot of leverage. There is a lot of but leverage. But aren't the leverage markers not suggesting that it's that bad? Well, if if you look at them, I mean, the other thing that's hit a record is the amount of debt that's out there, the amount of sovereign debt that's out there. I mean, if you take Japan, it is now over one quadrillion yen of um, of sovereign debts, ten trillion dollars. That's it's the number a, my brain doesn't a, really uh, function it's, it's, with. It's a huge, huge number. Italy, you know, is over two two trillion euros. You know, record amounts of sovereign debt. 
debt um, are, are, are being issued. And it's having a distorting effect on markets everywhere. I mean, we saw this in some ways yesterday. Um, everything was up. You know, gold was up, equities were up, bonds were up. Um, you know, everything, you know, when the data is bad, seems to almost go up in, in tandem. And, it, and it's the distorting effect of zero interest rate um, sort of policies across the markets. Well, some commodities are down and Copper. oil prices yep. have been down and yep. even the soft commodities are not uh, not yes. too high. That, that, that's the exception. I mean, the oil price um, has been a little bit bizarre given that there's um, geopolitical concerns around the world and, um, you know, the oil price has been sliding, you know, over the, almost at a, a 10-month low. But I think that's more to do with supply and supply. demand factors. Yeah, do, do you remember the last time we talked about peak oil? Yes. <laughs> it was quite a long time ago. It was a long, long time ago, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, Nobody talks about peak yeah. oil anymore. Um, however, you know, environmentalists don't like uh, getting oil from shale. Uh, and so, you know, we may, we may have a catastrophe at some point uh, yep. where that will be turned well, back. Be but, turned around. Yeah. So, I mean, isn't that a good thing that oil prices are down as low as they are? And isn't that um, something to cheer uh, that offsets the possible rise in interest rates when it comes because, you know, you're paying a lot less at the pump. It is. I mean, you know, that's that helps um, sort of keep inflationary pressures down, which again is another um, sort of positive for the economy and the, and the markets. And and I'm same with other commodities. I mean, copper, um, you know, is a is a good sort of reflection of the state of the global um, sort of economy. So the reason why copper is sliding is because of things like you know China um, sort of credit growth numbers, GDP numbers that are coming out of other parts of the world tend to reflect uh, you know a, a slowdown in the in the economy overall. But something, of course, is wrong because, you know, if you look at equity markets and bond markets, you almost think that, you know, they're both rising, um, you know, bond yields to record lows, equity markets, you know, close to record highs. In emerging markets, they're at three-year highs. Either the economy is great, um, in which case, you know, it, it can explain, um, you know, the, the rise we're seeing in equity markets, or we're close to a catastrophe, which would explain the, the, the low yields we're seeing in the bond markets. But it seems that both can't be right at the same time. Yes, demand is is definitely weak, and that's the thing keeping interest rates low. So I, that's why I have a little bit of trouble with um, your camp, the sound money camp, that would like to see higher interest rates. Why, if growth is is so weak, would you like to see higher interest rates? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the problem with I mean, do, you, do you really want a crash and then, you know, we rise from the ashes with a healthier economy? Because there are people who think, you know, you've got to get that Schumpeterian um, um movement. I don't want to see a crash. What I'm concerned about is that markets have now lost their ability to price risk correctly um, and to be a proper mechanism for price discovery because of the distortions of all the free money that's going into them. So we are, we are creating in financial markets huge, huge distortions on the back of the creation of huge amounts of debt. And, and no one knows, including the Fed, how to unwind that and how to get out, out of them. If you ask Janet Yellen, she hasn't got an answer. Um, to how we reverse, um, you know, the, the, the consequences of this. And, and what tends to happen when you get distortions of this sort of magnitude is they don't unwind in an orderly way when they do start to unwind. And my fear is that the unwinding of these distortions um, could be potentially very catastrophic for the financial markets and the overall economy. So you would advise people, uh, people listening to this, um, who are looking at, um, you know, devising a portfolio and trying to take advantage of what's happening uh, to protect themselves 
themselves a little bit now to diversify what more and maybe to sell down some of the stock gains that they've made, maybe take a little higher levels of cash, um, something like that? Yep. And also maybe protection against, you know, what in effect is a devaluation of some of these currencies. I mean, we've seen across history when you do this um, and you ultimately devalue um, your, your, your currency, you know, you're going to need to move into something else. But that's a little tricky. Or- that's a little tricky because you could say that physical property, okay, as as currency is devalued, that property will seem more valuable. So would you advise people to buy real estate I think even there, at these high levels? There is an argument to say that in your portfolio, you want to have you know, hard assets that in some ways are going to have a use, even if, you know, even if the markets around you are devaluing, you need to live somewhere, um, you know, in a house, regardless of, um, you know, the the value that it may have in the marketplace, you still have it. It's there and it's, um, you know, providing you haven't bought it on huge amounts of leverage, it is something that you own and, and you have. Similarly, you know, gold is, you know, is a, is a physical asset that tends to do well at times when, you know, currencies are being sort of debased. Okay, the time is 20 minutes after 8. Peter will stay with us for a while. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. And we'll be looking at lots more on the program Dead Ahead. I say good morning now to Frederick Ockvist, founder of China RAI, because we wanted to take a look at Ten Cents earnings, uh, which were out last night. Uh, Frederick, good morning. Good morning. So we we'll look at uh, Ten Cent and also talk a little bit about uh, Alibaba. Um, Ten Cent posting a fifty-nine percent rise in second quarter profit. It looks like when you look through this, um, you know, revenue was up pretty, pretty handsomely too, thirty-seven uh, percent. Um, does it look like a good report? I mean, yeah, on the face of it, it beats almost all the estimates that I've seen sort of a consensus on. And uh, yet it somehow speaks to how high the expectations are on this company, that the market mostly re, you know, reacted with a sort of collective shrug. Uh, overall for the day, it was up, you know, what was it, 0.15% or something like that. So very little actually came out of this from a, from a value standpoint for, uh, for investors. But it's a very strong report. It shows strong growth specifically in mobile and mobile games. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, they're doing very well. Sorry, didn't the earnings actually come out after the market closed? Uh, the earnings came out, let's see. I got the earnings. I think the market was still open, at least when, well, for the last, very last bit of it, at least. But anyway. Okay. Um, um, so we'll, we'll see. Well, one thing last, that yeah. I'm, I'm quite surprised about with, with Tencent, uh, it doesn't seem to have the media darling attention that Alibaba does, uh, because these earnings were pretty good, not on the front page of even the business post here in Hong Kong. Cathay's earnings were on there. Okay. I can kind of understand that. Cathay's the homegrown carrier. Um, but um, Tencent wasn't even mentioned in any of the Wall Street stuff that I went through when I got up this morning at 4 o'clock. Why is Tencent really not, um, you know, covered by the media as aggressively as others? Well, I think it's a harder sell. It's a more diversified company. It's more of a, really, it's, in essence, it's a games company. That's also what we're seeing a lot of the uh, the more exciting growth now, sort of online games of, uh, uh, or mobile games, rather, have grown from virtually nothing to $3 billion. And um, I think it's it's harder to explain Tencent, whereas 
Alibaba lends itself more to an easy media comparison. So you have, you know, it's the sort of uh, Amazon, etc., etc., and PayPal of China. Media tends to like those stories. They're easy to explain. It's also potentially the biggest IPO in the world ever, which, of course, you know, it's going to suck up a lot of attention.、Um, but yeah, you're right. Tencent. This type of report really does deserve a lot more attention than it has been getting. It seems like from your tone, also, that you're not that impressed、uh, by Tencent's earnings. Yes, I'm. I'm very impressed by it.、Um, the problem for Tencent is that they are grappling with just huge expectations.、Um, like I've, I've talked to、uh, to investors、um, in some cases who、uh, who discuss Tencent and say, you know, the, the question about Tencent and the current valuation really is if they can keep growing at forty percent per year for the next five to ten years. Now that is not a, a question you get about many companies. I mean, forty percent per year for the next ten years—that's quite a bit. It is massive growth,、um, and obviously, at some point, it will level off.、Uh, but if you look at WeChat and、uh, and QQ,、um, they have been adding like three hundred million monthly active users. It's a staggering number.、Yeah. Uh, but there's absolutely. Just really,、um, and you know the the key thing for them will be: Are they able to turn that into profit? In other words, to monetize those numbers. Yeah, and I think we'll get a little bit of a view on that when、uh, we get JD earnings coming out,、um, because of the the new investment from Tencent and Tencent taking up a pretty sizable chunk of JD, and them switching essentially all the e-commerce on there. We'll start to see. What type of traffic and what type of effect this、um, this WeChat and、uh, QQ integration will get for、uh, JD? The、and、fact will have some idea. The fact that they put all of their e-commerce assets into JD.com、uh, does that mean that、um, they don't really see that as much of a core business of theirs as some of the other、um, streams? I think it's, they see it as a. a A marketplace where there was just too much competition、uh, for them to be able to do that sort of what was essentially for them a, a side track, right? Their, their core company is very much gaming and now、uh, social. So I think they saw it as JD is a very strong competitor here. They have uh, integrated uh, logistics, etc., that give them a really good edge. And I think they want to pull in there and、uh, really get. A good price for the、uh, for the asset early on.、Um, yeah, I have one guest that comes on the program, and、uh, I've got a line that I've attached to him as sort of his mantra, which is "Get close to the server." And his point is that Alibaba and Tencent, and to a certain degree, companies like Amazon and eBay, are completely changing the world. And that they're really they're exporting deflation.、Uh, they are going to、uh, consume many many different types of businesses, retailers, banks, and others. Are you in that camp? Do you think that these companies are the future? I think they they might be.、Um, I think there are plenty of、uh, really interesting things happening now, especially in China, when you have the、uh, private banking licenses as well. So、uh, Tencent is now going to start opening their own. Physical banks as well, which is going to be very exciting for them. See what that happens.、Um, yeah, they can certainly change an awful lot, but I think it's easier for them to change more in China,、um, especially in the finance sector, where where we're seeing a lot of growth for them. Simply because 
Um, the finance sector has been very slow to move online, or rather the traditional financial companies have been very slow to move online and get adequate online offerings in China. Yeah, so well, I think the, um, the barrier to disruption is much lower. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting is with me in the studios. Uh, Peter, how much of a disruption to uh, banking, for instance, are these types of companies? Well, banking is a is a very competitive industry. It's very, very hard to, to break into. And, of course, obviously, a very strongly regulated industry as well. So, you know, the, the costs for anyone who wants to compete in that business, particularly on, you know, providing all the compliance that, that needs to go with that is, is, is very, very high. But nevertheless, you know, these companies, um, you know, have such a large customer base and, you know, and such a good penetration of the market that you almost think that, you know, this is a way in which they could potentially monetize more that, uh, that, that existing um, customer base by offering, you know, through mobile phones, uh, you know, some sort of online um, sort of banking service, fund management service, broker, brokerage sure. service. That, Alibaba, that is, uh, there. Alibaba and Tencent are already doing it uh, and it seems to be growing pretty fast. There was some opposition from uh, the regulatory agencies in in China. Frederick, is that going to be um, a big area for their business? Uh, and also, do the 10 cent earnings uh, boost the value of Alibaba? It's a good question of 10 cent boosting the, uh, the value of Alibaba. Um, I mean, you have a couple of things that you need to, uh, to remember. I think finance is going to be a very big part of uh, these companies' future because it is something that's in dire need of disruption here. Uh, the online banking uh, offerings from the traditional banks simply aren't good enough, so um, they've been able to do very well. Um, I think one of the key questions uh, that we're talking just upon right here, then, is how much regulatory pullback are they going to get? Uh, how big is the government going to let them get? So there's a little bit of a, um, of a talking point there. Um, but what you need to remember also when you're looking at these companies is that Tencent, as a foreign shareholder, when you buy into the holding company, with Tencent, they actually own their um, sort of payment services and their financial services in the Tencent company that's listed, well, through VAEs, but still, you don't actually have that in Alibaba. So of the two, do you prefer Tencent to Alibaba? Um, I prefer Tencent to Alibaba, yes, because I think... I'm a little bit of a stickler for sort of corporate governance. Um, so you may be able to guess that I have a, a few qualms about uh, investing in Alibaba for, uh, for very long periods of time uh, on a personal level. Peter, you used to be the CEO of MF Global, and uh, you've been in banking for quite a while, worked with a lot of the big houses. Uh, isn't this a great opportunity for uh, big financial institutions to try to, you know, get closer to the server themselves? It's what many of the financial institutions have been trying to do. But they're but just without, not doing it fast yeah, enough. Without a lot of success, I have, to, I have to say. I mean, you know, they haven't, you know, banks are not technology firms. And, and as much as they say that they have, you know, some of the best online systems and, you know, fastest servers. You're, yeah, you're let me ask you a question. Them. When's the last time you were in a physical branch? Oh, I, I never go to a physical branch. Frederick, I, I when was the last online. time you were in the branch? Oh, well, being in China, it's... Um probably last week or so. <laughs> okay, so you, you were actually in the bank, uh, because, uh, but, but I would say for a lot yeah, of people not, listening not, not here... Not by choice, I would hasten to add. I would imagine listeners would be kind of shaking their head, saying, yeah, you know, I don't go to the bank too much anymore. Most of my banking is done uh, over the Internet. Uh, they have managed to make it reasonably secure, and uh, so that's just the way of the future. Okay, we're out of time for the moment. Frederick, thank you very much. Uh, sometimes it goes in a slightly different direction, 
But, um, yeah, thanks for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Frederick Ockvist, founder of China RAI, helping us look at both Alibaba and Tencent, particularly in um, wake of the very strong earnings. Yeah, we got the news coming up next. The weather, well, it's going to be okay. Some chance of showers getting a little better towards the weekend. That's what you do when you don't have the weather forecast in front of you at all. If you really need to know what it is, <laughs> you know, just whip out your smartphone because that's probably where you get your look at the weather anyway. Time just after 8.30. Let's get the latest news. And here's Samantha Butler. Israel and representatives of militant Palestinian groups meeting in Cairo have agreed a further five-day ceasefire in Gaza. The decision came less than an hour before the end of an earlier 72-hour truce. The head of the Palestinian delegation, Azamal Ahmad, said his team would now consult with the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. The BBC's Kevin Connolly reports from Gaza. Right up to the last moment, the Cairo talks appeared doomed to failure. As the clock ticked down towards the deadline... Israel said rockets were fired at its territory from Gaza. Israel then responded with attacks of its own. It will only be as night gives way to morning in Gaza that it will become clear if either side regards those exchanges as a serious breach of the ceasefire. Any talks will still be forbiddingly difficult. Hamas and its partners want a complete opening of Gaza's borders and Israel is implacably determined to ensure that the militants don't emerge from this round of violence with anything that looks like a victory. Efforts are continuing to stem the spread of the deadly Ebola virus in West Africa. In Nigeria, a third death from the disease has been announced. The BBC's Will Ross reports from Lagos. In Nigeria, the government has called for people to cooperate with the medical experts amid reports that a nurse had skipped quarantine. The information minister said the nurse was suspected to have contracted Ebola but had headed to her home in the east of the country, potentially endangering many lives. Meanwhile, a small quantity of an experimental drug has arrived in Liberia to treat two infected doctors. In Sierra Leone, a second senior doctor has died from Ebola. As fears grow over the potential spread of the virus, the World Health Organization has now classified Kenya as a high-risk country. The wife of mainland human rights lawyer Gao Sheng says he suffered malnutrition and psychological abuse in prison and is calling for Beijing to let him seek treatment in the United States. Mr Gao was released last week after serving a three-year prison sentence but remains under close surveillance. His wife, who fled to the US with their two children in 2009, said her husband lost over 22 kilograms while in prison. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. You're listening to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Peter Lewis, and an upcoming guest will be Robert Howe of the hedge fund Akamai Capital. So we'll be going to Robert a little bit later, of course, in the second half hour of the program in this new format. You get a lot more news here. We'll tell you about some of the business stories we were following. The Bank of England has stepped back a little bit from the timing of an interest rate rise. Earnings have been coming in uh, very briskly here in the last uh, couple of days. Ten cent had strong earnings. Cisco did 
too, but the stock fell a little bit in after hours because it it actually forecast uh, slightly weaker in the next quarter. And we'll also be talking more about China Mobile, Lenovo, Swire Pacific, and CLP and their earnings later. Markets are mostly green here in Asia. We see gains of about a quarter to a half of a percent. Details now on some of the leading stories in our news. Israel and the Palestinians have agreed to extend a ceasefire in Gaza for a further five days. The agreement came just before a 72-hour ceasefire ended. But just ahead of the agreement, Israel said that at least three rockets launched from Gaza landed in the south of the country. Hamas denied firing anything from its territory. We get some details now on the ceasefire from the BBC's Yolanda Nell in Gaza. Well, it was with just half an hour to spare that we had confirmation, certainly from the Egyptians and from the Palestinians, that this five-day extension to the truce had been agreed. And that will give Egyptians who have been trying to negotiate uh, through indirect talks that they're overseeing in Cairo um, a longer-term ceasefire deal. We had had very worrying signs that the two sides remained very far apart, uh, certainly with Israel demanding that Palestinian militant groups in Gaza should be made to disarm and the Palestinians calling for an end to the very tight border restrictions that are imposed on Gaza by both Israel and by Egypt. Now they're going to have, it looks like, until Monday uh, to try to come up uh, with some kinds of compromises. Um, but there are also some other signs still tonight that things um, are not uh, as they might uh, seem on the surface. Uh, we have rockets fired into Israel. Uh, that could suggest that there are smaller militant groups who don't necessarily go along with the Hamas plans for a longer-term truce, or else that there are perhaps militant groups in the Sinai who are firing um, into Israel. This is something that's happened in the past as well. Um, but certainly Israel remains very cautious. Just a few hours ago, um, it moved uh, some of its armed forces closer to the border. You might be able to hear overhead at the moment. Still, we have a very loud sound of Israeli drones above us. Yolanda Nell reporting. Meantime, on Iraq, the White House says it's considering a range of options to ease the suffering of the thousands of Yazidis who fled the advancing militants of the Islamic State. Many remain stranded on Mount Sinjar in northern Iraq. The Pentagon has sent more than 100 military advisors to the area. Ben Rhodes, the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor, said that President Obama was considering ways that U.S. troops on the ground could help the Yazidis other than fighting the Islamic State forces is open to recommendations uh, in which the United States is helping to facilitate the removal of these people from the mountain on a humanitarian mission, which we believe is separate than saying U.S. forces are going to be redeployed in Iraq in a combat role to take the fight uh, to ISIL. Uh, The people who are on the ground fighting ISIL uh, are the Kurdish forces and the Iraqi security forces. We are taking action from the air on the objectives of protecting our people and uh, providing a humanitarian space for the Yazidis, in particular on the mountain. If there's additional things that we can do as part of an effort to move them off the mountain, uh, he'll certainly review those, uh, those options. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. China is about to try one of the most notorious murders in recent history. In late May, a group belonging to a banned Christian cult beat a woman to death in a fast food restaurant. Her only crime was to refuse them her telephone number. The group in question is called the Church of Almighty God, and it claims to have millions of members. The BBC's Carrie Gracie reports on this secretive cult and its victims. (laughs) 
It was an ordinary evening in a small town McDonald's in East China until these people turned up. A family of six trying to recruit new members to their Christian cult. They moved between the tables asking for phone numbers and when one diner refused, they beat her to death, screaming at other diners to keep away or they would face the same fate. The savage murder was filmed on closed-circuit TV and on mobile phones. It shocked China. Who were these people prepared to kill over a phone number? Interviewed in prison later, there was no remorse and no fear. I beat her with all my might and stamped on her too. She was a demon. We had to destroy her. Zhang Lidong and the other killers belonged to a band cult called the Church of the Almighty God. Its public face is this website full of shimmering choirs. But its core belief is that God has returned to Earth as a Chinese woman to wreak the apocalypse. No mention of the murders, mutilations and riots that the cult itself has been accused of. Instead, the website claims millions of followers and says nearly 400,000 have been persecuted by Chinese police in the past three years alone. BBC's Kerry Gracie reporting. Here at home, the police commissioner, Andy Zhang, has defended the right of his officers to sign a petition against the Occupy Central campaign. He says those who sign will not have violated the police code of conduct. That code of conduct requires officers to remain politically neutral. The force will ensure that its officers will continue to be politically neutral when they discharge their duty. But I believe the public will also understand that as any other members of the public, uh, police officers do have the same civil and political rights. Unless such rights are sort of restricted by law, then they are entitled to express their personal opinion, including uh, in support of certain, uh, certain activities. Mr. Zhang refused to say if he'd signed the Alliance for Peace and Democracy's anti-Occupy petition. He said it is not important. The force will be policing the anti-Occupy march uh, this Sunday. Commissioner Zhang said that the police would do their best to ensure that the march is peaceful. We've heard uh, certain uh, people who indicate that they would turn up to show their um, uh, disagreement with this uh, rally. And uh, we have to take that in mind in our uh, risk assessment. And we will do what is necessary to make sure that the activities is conducted lawfully and peacefully. Meantime, the chairman of Cathay Pacific, John Slozer, has entered the debate over Occupy Central. He says he hopes Hong Kong's status as a prime tourist destination won't be damaged if the campaign does go ahead when Beijing hands down its decision on political reform here. If you have things that look like political unrest, it will impact travel for sure. And I'm not making that up. You can see it in other places right away. So we think that travelers love stability. They like to know that where they're, where they're going, you know, everything will be fine and they can get to their hotel and they won't be inconvenienced. We think tourism is an important part of the Hong Kong economy. It has been for a long time. We very much hope that there won't be any disruption to that. Hong Kong has built a great brand around the world as a place that people would like to come and visit, and we really wouldn't like to see anything to damage that.
Mr. Slozer's hopes could well be dashed. That's because local NPC delegate Chang Yutong says that Beijing wants absolute certainty about the results of future chief executive elections. The Occupy Central campaign has threatened to launch the civil de- de- disobedience campaign when all hopes of having a real choice in the 2017 CE vote are dashed. Well, we're joined now by Robert Howe, Chief Executive Officer of Akamai Capital. Robert, good morning. And thank you for waiting. Good morning. I, I just, aloha. Yes, aloha. And, um, you know, again, I uh, hope you don't gloat over being uh, in Hawaii when we are suffering in high humidity and intense heat and strong rain in Hong Kong. But you will gloat, won't you? Typhoons last week, but they both they both just missed us. So. Too true. Okay, um, I wanted to ask you about Occupy Central. Uh, as an investor that looks at Hong Kong a lot, does that concern you? Um, sorry, does what concern? Does Occupy Central and um, what comes out of the NPC Standing Committee at the end of this month uh, does that concern you as a, as an investor here? Um, a little bit, not very much. No. The thing that's the market to pick off the, the lows is the same that calls the should start moving, which is the first up. Robert, Robert, I think, I think, I think what we're going is, is more liquidity than these sort of political things. Robert, I think what we are going to do is to try to reestablish a better line with you. You're not coming through clearly at all. So please hang up and we'll try to get you back on. And I'll go to Peter Lewis, uh, who's with me in, in our studios here at Broadcasting House. Peter, um, we haven't talked too much in recent days about uh, Occupy Central. Um, it looks like now China is going to take a harsher line than what many of the pandemocrats had hoped. Um, are you a little bit worried about um, uh, the effects on Hong Kong people and the possibility of the Occupy Central cam- um, campaign? Well, I'm, I'm slightly less worried than maybe the, uh, the CEO of Cathay Pacific is. I, I think, you know, providing demonstrations are peaceful. Um, you know, we see in many countries around the world, many democracies around the world, we see protests and we see people protesting against various things. It's not that that drives tourism away or drives business away. It's when the political situation becomes either very unstable, as we see in Thailand, for example, or, um, you know, when those, um, you know, when those protests suddenly become violent, then, you know, that, that's a different matter. But I, I don't think we're at that point in, um, in, in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, the, the political situation here is stable. It may not be what everyone likes, but we have a, you know, we have a stable um, sort of government here and we have a, a, a very clear framework for how, you know, for how that government is going to be, um, is going to be formed. So I don't think that's necessarily going to drive investment and, and business away when we, when we see the, the outcome at the end of the month. A demonstration is one thing, but what causes the demonstration could, would you not agree, lead to instability, even if we do not have it now? It could. I, I mean, clearly there is a lot of concern here in Hong Kong about, um, you know, what the decision is going to be, and a lot of people are going to be, um, you know, very unhappy with it. Um, it's very hard to to think that that is necessarily going to drive investment, you know, out, out of Hong Kong on on mass. Um, I, I don't think that that is necessarily going to be the trigger for, um, you know, for, for for you know for businesses to sort of pull in their horns and and suddenly not want to be here or not want to invest further um, here. 
But there's the other side of the of that argument, which is that if we don't actually get any movement at all towards uh, genuine universal mm-hmm. suffrage, where you have a choice uh, among candidates, um, that doesn't that send a signal to investors that the core values in Hong Kong have been trammeled upon? Well, you know, democracy comes in many, many forms. And, and I think, you know, people, you know, invest in China and, uh, you know, are very happy to invest in China where, you know, there is far less of a, of a choice than there is here in Hong Kong. Well, so, I know, mean, you could argue that um, a big part of the reason that the stock market hasn't performed well is people don't trust what happens in China. Well, I think, you know, democratic reforms, you know, Oh, a good thing. I mean, having a, you know, having a democracy, having rule of law, um, you know, is, is a good thing for financial markets. It's a good thing for business and having that stability. But, you know, it does come in a number of different ways. There's, you know, there's around the world, you know, many different versions of, um, of, of democracy. Um, and it's not all the Western version or the, or the, uh, you know, or the, or the US version. Okay. We've managed to reestablish contact with Robert Howe from Akamai Capital. Robert, uh, thanks for, for being patient. Um, yeah, just wanted to get your views about Occupy Central, as I've just been discussing with Peter, two ways to look at it. One, we could be seeing instability in its early stages in Hong Kong if um, what comes out of the NPC Standing Committee isn't acceptable to them. On the other hand, you could also see investors um, get um, you know, get a sour taste in their mouth about Hong Kong if some of our core values uh, seem to be slipping. I sort of agree with Peter's view on it. I mean, investors are, are pretty cold calculating and don't really care about democracy. So in terms of international flows into Hong Kong, the, the key will be, you know, whether they where they see the monetary and economic cycle in mainland China, which is any better with a reserve rate, big reserve ratio uh, cut for the banking system last month. It is interesting to counter um, some of the concerns about uh, instability here or some of the other concerns I mentioned with the huge flow of funds into Hong Kong. Is that something you've been watching? It's something we've been participating in. When we saw the reserve ratio cut after the market um, bounced, when it came back again, we bought, you know, the individual stocks and um, index exposure to China for the first time in many, many years. So would you have been buying some of the um, ETF trackers? Yes, I mean, that's the easiest exposure. Um, you know, there's a um, ticker FXI in, in the New York Stock Exchange, which is, is a large um, you know, large cap tracker, tracker fund for mainland China. Um, yeah, I mean, these things are more important for the citizens in Hong Kong who are listening to your program over a coffee right now and, and you know, just wondering what the quality of life and the openness of society will be. Um, unfortunately, the financial markets care less about that. Do you worry that some people may be betting against the peg holding? Hmm. I just... It is bouncing right at the top of the range, and that's very bullish because that requires intervention that creates more money within Hong Kong to keep basically printing Hong Kong dollars to keep um, the, the, the peg from breaking. 
so I, they can do that till the cows come home, but it would cause asset prices to, to rise even further in Hong Kong. So it's not really a concern. Uh, there was uh, something like a 180-page report delivered by Bill Ackman, uh, an activist investor and a hedge fund operator, uh, saying that the Hong Kong dollar was something like 30% undervalued and the peg wouldn't hold. But that was uh, more than a year ago, and uh, of course he's been wrong. It might be undervalued, um, but yeah, I mean, the good thing about it, you know, the top of the range in the 1997 financial crisis, where my hair turned white in three weeks, it was the bottom range that was being uh, being tested, and that's harder to, uh, to manage because you're not printing Hong Kong dollars to buy U.S. dollars to maintain the peg, and, and um, it, it's... Um, it, the way they intervened was to take the, the reserve fund and go in and, and buy the stock market because hedge fund managers like Ackman were testing the lower end of the peg to drive up interest rates in Hong Kong and shorting the stock market as it plummeted back then. And what they, they just they handed them huge losses um, on their short the Hang Seng index. And, and as you know, they bought about 3 to 5% of Hong Kong in a, in a day. And, and turn the hedge funds around. So the, the, the Hong Kong monetary authorities are, you know, one of the, one of the best in the world. Uh, they're very well respected, and I don't think you know, people are going to be testing them very much. Okay, so let's go back to uh, Hong Kong and China shares, and, uh, and if not shares, um, other investments. Um, what, what do you like at the moment? Um, we like um, companies that are emerging as dominators on a global scale from out of China. So as you know, Lenovo bought IBM's laptop business and has made a, a, a good business of that and are emerging as the low-end dominator in electronics, which other people have trouble making money at. Um, Higher Electronics is a white goods maker that is buying GE's business, and we see that as a complete parallel. Um, Nanwa is a furniture maker, which has made some acquisitions and is coming out onto the global market. And these are things we're buying at very cheap prices and and uh, want to hold them for three to five years. So you're buying because you think valuations are low. Lee Cushing is selling. He's been selling quite a lot of assets in Hong Kong and China. Um, does that send a signal to you that as an asset trader um, that he thinks the best days are in? He's a... He's, 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 lose money and you don't lose money betting with Lee Cushing. Yeah, it's a concern. I think a lot of his the assets that he's selling are property assets, and certainly the property markets have gone a long way. But yes, he's, he's also divesting of, of, of some shares. Um, and what he tends to do is to recycle that into to something else. And you know, knowing him, he's buying you know very undervalued, distressed European assets. Um, he's a global investor these days. Do you like Europe um, at these lower levels? Yes, I'm not an expert in Europe, but yes, I think it's cheap, and eventually everything tur- turns. Um, but we, we probably like China better. China's moved nowhere for 20 years. It's, it's done nothing but lose you money with great volatility, heart-stopping volatility in between. So we know it a little bit better. We see the, the liquidity cycle is turning, and that's sort of where we, we've been investing more, as, as well as in, in the U.S. We invest in both. We had some quite disappointing um, credit numbers yesterday. I mean, disappointing, I suppose, from people who are long markets. Uh, uh, but maybe it was um, pleasing to those people who think there's too much debt in China. Uh, where do you stand on on something like that? 
yeah, the num- you could have read the number either way. That, that you know, loan growth is slowing down, so that's a worry for the economy. But then again, it's not you know hyper lending. Um, I, I mean, the market is pricing the Chinese banks as if there's going to be massive write-offs. That there's just bad debt everywhere, um, and you know, in past cycles, they've they've managed through the bad debt with um, with, with with bad debt. Uh, Special, special vehicles. Um, you know, we, we've been buying into the banking sector as well. And if you buy something like the FXI, you're getting big exposure to banks. So we're less worried than the market is about about that sector. Peter, do you worry a little bit about the speed of the the deleveraging that could go on? I mean, the credit numbers that came out yesterday, if, if continued, we all want to see sort of less credit being formed, particularly in the shadow banking se- sector. But what we, what we don't want to see is a is a violent deleveraging, which which would have an effect on the real economy. Do you worry about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, this property bubble has been lanced, and there's there's sort of a rush for the exits and everything. You know, Trying to call in loans, absolutely. Um, you know, we're not a kind of Armageddon scenario on on China the way, um, to some extent, Ackman has been, um, uh, Doc uh, Jim Chenos and, and others. Um, you know, we're we're more sanguine about the about the banking system. It is the shadow banking system that's of, of concern, where where interest rates are much higher that people are paying under the table. Okay, Robert, um, I'd like to talk longer, but we just don't have a good quality line, so we'll say goodbye for now. Robert Howe, CEO of Akamai Capital. Well, we'll pick up a little bit more news before we wrap up today. Uh, WWF Hong Kong says there's been a sharp drop in support for the construction of a third runway at Sheklap Kok. An opinion survey commissioned by the group last month found that backing for the project stood at 47%. A similar survey by the airport authority in 2011 put support levels at 73%. Our Hugh Chiverton asked WWF Hong Kong's assistant conservation manager, Samantha Lee, why people are changing their minds now about the third runway? I would say that in 2011, um, when the airport authority conducted a proper uh, consultation, um, actually at that time they didn't really give too much information about uh, what kind of impacts that will uh, affect our environment. They just keep claiming uh, there will be air, noise, and uh, marine impacts. But um, after the proper inspection of the environmental impact assessment report, um, the extent of the impact and how it will affect our environment uh, were revealed in a very detailed approach. So I think uh, in addition, uh, the topic, their their awareness on the marine conservation has been raised um, quite a lot in recent years. So after uh, the topic, uh, they got to know what uh, the details of the impact, the type of impact. I think that's why they have been more cautious in uh, supporting this kind of large-scale infrastructure that may cause a huge impact to the environment. Uh, So people are better informed now, you say. Uh, Did you still find, though, that more people support the runway than are against the runway? Um, I would say that uh, for the support, it's less than half, which is 47%. And then, sorry, uh, less, less the, than, sorry, less than half of the people that you that you approach. Does that does it still hold true that more people support it than are against it? Well, uh, technically, I would say yes, but I would also say about 33 percent uh, of the people they still have half. They cannot really decide to support or not. Hmm. So it's true that more people support it than are against it, even after this information has come out. Uh, currently, yes, but we still can see the drop of the support when compared to the previous data. 
if you think that opinions are, are shifting in, in that direction, um, what do you think have been the crucial things? Is it, is it a, a question of the pollution, the, the, the plight of the dolphins, or what? Because when according to our post, uh, we found that 55% of the respondents, they think that when we will post uh, adverse impact to the Chinese white dolphin. Uh, Samantha Lee, a spokesman for WWF Hong Kong. Zelda Williams, the daughter of the actor Robin Williams, has stopped using Twitter and Instagram after being sent offensive messages following the death of her father. Robin Williams killed himself on Monday. We get details here from the BBC's Alastair Leithhead in Los Angeles. She's an actress, she's 25. Um, she obviously uses social media a lot, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, anyway, she, she messaged um, on Twitter. Her, her last tweet before she stopped using it was, um, I'm deleting this, i.e. Twitter, from my devices for a long time, maybe forever, because she'd been receiving uh, hateful messages. And also two, um, what are known obviously as, as trolls, who had been um, sending her messages and, and photoshopped Photographs, that's uh, images that had been kind of made up by them, essentially, um, showing basically her father's head on another photograph, um, showing bruises around his neck as if he was uh, in a mortuary. It was very tasteless, uh, and Twitter has since suspended the two accounts of those people who had tweeted these pictures to her but obviously this caused her great distress and of course has angered many people on twitter as well who've um, responded very aggressively against this it's it's an increasing problem for people in the public eye and and obviously when something like this happens to someone who's just lost their father you get the sense of, of how traumatic how horrific this is BBC's Alastair Leithhead reporting uh, from Los Angeles. Well, the time is coming up to 9 o'clock, and uh, that's our show for today. Before we get to the weather and the news, I'll just uh, bring you up to date on markets. Uh, we do see some green numbers today, so it looks like uh, it is risk-on at the moment. The Nikkei's up uh, just about 70 points, around half a percent. In Australia, the main index there is up a third of a percent, and in Seoul, the Kospi has picked up about one-half of a percent. Oil prices, one three. So still on the downside, gold, $1,312, a very modest pickup uh, from the past few days. Well, in the weather today, mainly cloudy with some showers. And this is the official call. Isolated thunderstorms at first, sunny periods later, maximum temperature 31. Becoming fine and very hot in the next couple of days. Hey, thanks for joining us here on Radio 3. You've been listening to Money for Nothing. Brian Curtis and Peter Lewis here with me. We'll see you tomorrow. Morning Brew is next.